This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. A big thank you to the doctors for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you now until 12. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you faring? Fantastic. What a lovely day for a bike ride. (laughs) (laughs) I cycled over to the studio this morning. It's glorious. Oh, I was going to say, you know, you're stuck in here for the next hour. Oh, I am. (laughs) But I was thinking that, you know, you could put your headphones on Mm. and go for a cycle with science. You could indeed. That'd be fun. Until you crash. I'm going to be talking about that soon. Oh, dear. Dr. Jen? (laughs) Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. You too. Yeah. We've only got uh, one more week after this one. I know. I can't believe it. Haven't been away for so much of this year. I'm kind of still in about August in my head. I'm a bit, you know, flummoxed that all of a sudden it's actually Christmas. Oh, you're talking about the radio show. I I was talking about Star Wars. Well, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. What else would you uh, talk about? Chris KP? Hello there. You... <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree, Dr. Chris. It's a lovely day for a bike ride. It's equally a lovely day for an alpaca ride. I've mm. done neither. But it is a lovely Camel day. Camel ride. Yeah. Folks, you've got sure. to kind of... Let me set the scene for, for why we laugh when Chris does that, because he's kind of sitting there like a... Kind of like a frightened turtle. And, and then all That's of a, a sudden... a specific look. All of a sudden he kind of pops out. And anyway, it's, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, disturbing for all of us. Crystal, shall we jump into some news? Absolutely. Arguably, one of the biggest scientific, medical and public health stories of the year has been the Ebola outbreak that's been ongoing Mm. in West Africa, um, with uh, more than 28,000 people infected and over 11,000 of those people dying. Um, And as uh, the West African nations enter the elimination uh, phase, uh, this week there was actually, um, disappointingly, some confirmed cases of Ebola in Liberia, where they were actually heading into who had been previously declared Ebola-free, um, where a 15-year-old uh, teenager died and there had been transmission to family members. And so now, you know, they're uh, reaching out to trace all the contacts to again try and dampen dampen down um, this uh, resurgence of Ebola in Liberia, uh, which is uh, very timely because this week um, there was actually a genetic analysis of Ebola strains published in Cell Host Microbe Journal, um, really looking at samples from patients uh, throughout the Ebola uh, outbreak to look at their genomes because you know every sample of Ebola can be slightly different and so they actually uh, found uh, 165 Ebola genomes and it gave information on how the virus spreads because you then can connect well this Ebola strain looks like this Ebola strain so it must have come from this place at this time and you can start to really build up an epidemiological picture of how the disease spreads and importantly how it mutates um, and one of the big findings of this uh, research paper on the Ebola strains coming out of Liberia uh, was that the virus is not rapidly mutating and it's not changing its virulence which is very important good news and it's good news but mm. then raises the question well, why is there this emergence and resurgence mm. of ebola happening mm. still happening and it turns out that it, that there is potential for ebola uh, virus to survive long term in certain uh, bodily fluids so it may be in tears or it may be um sexually transmitted through fluids and so it may be that there is um that uh, so there's an example of a a man who'd had ebola but was otherwise completely well potentially 
actually um, sexually transmitting the disease on. Oh, so wow. it may be that Ebola yeah. could be present in semen for a really long period of time. Yeah. Mm. Um, cases of mothers who'd had Ebola and been cured, gotten pregnant and had a baby, and, and then maybe transmission through the placenta. Wow. And so there, there could be cases where the Ebola virus hides out in some of the sites in the body that um, the immune system can't reach. Um, and so that there, there needs to be ongoing research around the patterns around this um, disease. And it may be that in the past we just didn't pick it up because previously Ebola outbreaks were never this big. Mm. Like, you know, you know, 30 people was a massive outbreak of Ebola until, you know, mm. there was th- almost mm. 30,000. And so a really rare event that might only happen, you know, one in 100 times or one in 500 times, you know, can actually happen in, with mm. these larger numbers. So, and they were kind of little spot fires, weren't they? I mean, you'd, as you say, you'd get mm. 30 or 50 people. And, and because of the severity of the, the condition, they, they would actually be quite, um, you know, big events, you know, they would be seen as big events if there was an outbreak of 30 people. It was oh, nothing that, like what we... Absolutely. And a, yeah, a yeah. huge outbreak of Ebola was 30 people yeah. dying. Yeah, that but that would massive. be worldwide news. You know, yeah. this was a terrible, terrible virus and, you know, it was a really big deal. So it's it's, it's on a dif- different scale. Absolutely. We're, we're at a completely different scale. And because of that, mm. we're finding out so much more of the biology, which will hopefully inform the way in which we go about public health strategies in the future and really, um, hopefully, uh, not... And so this research is ongoing. And Australia, actually, in Melbourne, is one of the few places in the world that has a high security mm. containment lab to do Ebola mm. research and so Australia and Victoria are actually leading the world um, in some of these areas. Mm. Very cool. Dr Jen? I'm going to completely change pace from such a serious <laughs> topic. You know how annoying it is this whole phenomenon of, phenomenon of selective deafness? You know when you ask your partner Sorry, or your kids exactly to do something and they're watching TV or reading a book or whatever and they just seem to completely ignore you and it drives you crazy? Some research came out this week from University College London to suggest that they're not ignoring you. They actually can't hear you. Some of them are. At all. Well, yeah, some of them are. But, hey, I want to let this people. Let's be kind. It's the season of goodwill. Okay. Goodwill. Let's people, let people off the hook. So it turns out that when we concentrate really hard on some visual task, we actually are momentarily deaf to sounds, sounds that, that are loud enough normally that we would hear them. Now, it turns out that if it's a really loud sound, like, you know, you're, say you're walking along texting on your phone, if a car... Um, you know, beeps at you and it's a really loud sound, you will hear it. But it turns out if it's just a car driving past, it's just the engine, if you're concentrating enough on your phone, as so many people seem to do, you actually can't hear it. So the way they worked this out was to use this fancy new technique of Crystal showing me her phone. <laughs> and you noticed that. This, I did no, notice she's, it. She's checking her email. Oh, okay. Um, so they were actually basically scanning people's brains as they were getting them to engage in either a fairly simple visual task or a quite difficult and complex and demanding visual task, playing them sounds that they checked first to make sure they could definitely hear them and then played them those same sounds as they were engrossed in this task and they monitored what was going on in the brain and they looked at the process of how we effectively how we process sounds and really early on in that phase the sounds just weren't being registered Mm. so people are effectively Mm. deaf to sounds when they're busy doing something else Mm. so we have like a limited ability to to sense or perceive things and if we're using up so many of those neurons um, by seeing something we just become deaf to sounds which is quite important to know for something like if you're walking and texting you may not hear a car if you're sitting on the train busily reading your book you don't hear them announcing your stop Mm. Think about a surgeon, a surgeon who is engrossed in doing their particular uh, job that day may not hear the beeping of a machine off mm. in the corner that's actually giving them really mm. important information. I, I mean, whenever I hear these stories, I always like to, my mind immediately goes back to the savannah. 
Yes. And, you know, being chased <laughs> by a tiger or whatever. And, and how did we evolve this, this sort of cognitive ability? And, and it may actually have been an advantage to be mm. able to focus all of Absolutely. your attention yep. on just the visual aspects. I don't care if he's growling. Yep. Yeah, I do care precisely what's in front of me, precisely what's around me, the visual cues for where I need to go to best survive. Uh, yep. uh, you know, most of these things must have evolved into our system somehow. Mm. And uh, I'm always curious about how many other animals have the same scenario. You know, so do, do birds do it in the same way? I mean, well, presumably you could you know, use they're exactly visually the very, techniques. very good. I mean, you look at some um, hawks and so forth, mm. their visual acuity is extraordinary. Yep. But do they, do they have to block out? noise mm. when they do you know it's interesting you, mm. and then you imagine if that actually could be harnessed like you mm. imagine it's like you know in the movies be like all power to the front shields like, yes. you know, like, <laughs> you'd be like yes. you know, can i actually now divert my attention to different sensory outputs I when like i need that. them yeah, yeah. Ch- children are superheroes that's uh <laughs> that's optimistic so i think there's a message there listeners close your eyes because it's going to be a lot better if you do. And the message <laughs> the there show. also is they're probably not ignoring you. They probably didn't hear you. Yeah, if you're busy yeah. watching the road right now <laughs> and you've got us on, close your eyes just for a moment <laughs> oh, dear, oh, and you'll learn so much more today. Uh, is that a good rewind message? Rewind 30 seconds, listeners, and delete. Uh, you know, you've got to give them something to, to work on. If you're at the lights, close your eyes for crying out loud. Just wait because sooner or later... Someone's you, going to abuse some, you. Someone's going to pamp you and you'll be tuned into the audio anyway. I wonder, it's all good. I wonder if you can train yourself to be better. Can you train yourself to sort of keep keep a you know a, a periphery senses open? Can you teach yourself to do that? I don't know why. No, you this would, research would you know. suggest you can't because mm. you have limited neural capacity unless you don't focus on the visual task. But can you no, give you something can't. else up? I don't know what. <laughs> what, have you got? what are you offering, Sense of Chris? touch. <laughs> what am I like, yeah, sense, sense of touch. touch. Yeah, exactly. Sense of touch. I can no longer feel yeah. things with my fingertips, I, but I, I can hear stuff while yeah. I'm sitting. I won't feel, I won't feel yeah. that I'm sitting or, or anything, but I will hear and see at the same time. Because I know time. that I'm Isn't sitting. I don't meditation? need to feel the chair. Maybe. Isn't that meditation? Yeah. I'll give up smell. Sometimes, especially with Chris <laughs> yes, Gatelli. <that's> right. <laughs> especially with the news he's about to tell yes. us. Well, maybe. That's a good segue. Uh, Chris, uh, something to do with socks. And urine, that's yeah. all I know. Yeah, so this is a, this is, this is a story about a, um, the paper, um, from which is published in Bioinspiration and Biometrics, Biomimetrics, Biomimetrics sorry, um, is titled Self-Sufficient Wireless Transmitter Powered by Foot-Pumped Urine-Operating Wearable MFC. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing you need to understand is, that an MFC is a microbial fuel cell. And these aren't new. For, for many years now, people have been using microbial action to generate current. So that's not a new thing. Um, what these guys have done, however, and I urge listeners to go to the website, any website, and there's several that are now showing this picture, um, and look at it because it is not only complicated looking, it's also absolutely ghastly in terms of fashion. Uh, but it's a laboratory-based thing. It's an experiment, okay? It's a prototype, so let's cut on some slack. Essentially what these guys have done is they have, they've got a microbial fuel cell, so this thing has the potential produce, to produce current, but it's being, the, the electrolyte source for, for that is urine, human urine. And so they've basically got some pee inside the system, which then has to be pumped around to run the electrolyte across the fuel cell. Um, and they've done this by mimicking a a single-loop fish circulatory system. So they've taken some inspiration from nature there. Um, and the involuntary muscles that are in a fish, they've replaced by simply having some soft tubes under the heel of this person. <laughs> so as you walk around, you're pumping pee through the tubes, which is in fact generating enough current, in this case here, um, for them to, to actually generate a signal which can be picked up by you know, some you know, remote 
you know, computer, basically. Hmm. So you can send a signal out. Um, now, I know you're thinking, you're thinking, that's nice. Why would you do this? <laughs> the first question I ask, actually, is whose urine is it? Because uh, if it's mine, that's a little bit gross, but I'm okay with it. If it's somebody else's, Ooh. it's just weird, isn't it? It's like sitting on a yeah. chair that's already warm. It's, it's just a bit NQR. <laughs> but does, it, does this kind of mean that you could one day power your own mobile phone? Just potentially. By with yes, phone potentially, yeah. So I'm, I, it's not weird. I'm just getting my phone charged. Yeah, that's uh, it's a little bit weird. The, the oh, like, my phone's yeah, running well, out of battery. Hold on. Hang on. Yeah, hold, hold on a moment. Yeah, yeah I'll just be back in a moment. Pass me some water. I need to charge my phone. Um, what I love about it, though, is I had the same question. I'm going, okay, as a proof of principle and, and that idea, as a wearable technology, that's grouse. Okay, fine. Mm. But picture this. Picture yourself, if you will, with you know this unit that you could put onto your body etc that can produce a signal and that's pretty much all it can do and you have that in you know i don't know your bag your glove box your office whatever and then you're involved in a landslide or an earthquake um, or a serious accident of some sort you need to get a signal out saying i'm over here then it's useful mm-hmm. then cool. when, you, when you can you know you can finally capture your urine um and do good with it <laughs> that's when it might in fact be a useful thing and you have nothing else so the label on it would say in case of emergency pee here <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah, yeah. <laughs> in case of emergency break water i think that's um i think that's the symbol we're looking for we're just flushing so much goodness down the toilet aren't we? Yeah. i mean we really yeah, are we are yeah good story chris and uh, thanks for using uh, i mean i was worried that we wouldn't get the word grouse into our program in 2016 but you've done it. Thank Rest you very assured. much. <laughs> <Bingo>. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I have a, a short story I just mentioned, but um, apparently uh, researchers from North Carolina State University have managed to pull out a small amount of protein from an 80 million year old hadrosaur uh, that they found, which is kind of cool. Um, no, folks, Jurassic Park is not upon us. Um, this is, I mean, it's it's a protein called myosin, which is, I assume, one that's well known. Um, so I think it's kind of cool that 80 million years ago, myosin was floating around. Um, but uh, it, it does change the way they're, they're going about some of this research, and, and it just uh, indicates that they can go looking for this. So it's both part visual inspection to know where you should look, mm-hmm. but then being able to extract it as well. Very cool stuff. But I thought mainly I just wanted to mention, um, for those of you who haven't heard, the the good news coming out of Paris this morning, Mm. which Mm. is, um, look, uh, my understanding is I don't think they've quite signed yet, but they have agreed. Now, there's a a small distance between those two things, (laughs) I suspect. Hopefully not too big a distance. Um, But the idea of, um, you you know, look, there's going to be a lot of news coming out over the next few days on this about people saying not good enough and a lot of people saying, this is ridiculous, why are we bothering? Mm. And um, I think somewhere in the middle is the idea that we should restrain warming to below two degrees. And, in fact, they've even put this, this sort of more hopeful, wishful, mm, you know, 1. maybe 5. if I close my eyes and count to 10 target of 1.5 degrees, mm. which in reality still means a lot of Pacific Islands and that are kind of screwed. My understanding um, is that the, the 1.5 is actually far more evidence-based. The two was a random number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. so it, it does... It does um, you know, look like we're heading in the direction that we didn't um, post um, Kyoto. I mean, you know, the last time this group met, it was pretty much a disaster. Nothing came out of it at all. So to actually have something come out of this this time, an agreement between 100, and, I think it's 195 nations, wow. which involves both developed and developing nations and compensatory behaviour between the two to, to make it work. You know, it's it's something that we can, you know, if we had Tim Flannery on the show again, I, I think he'd probably be saying, you know, good 
good start. Mm. Um, we're not not there yet. There's a lot of work to do, but at but least we positive. haven't screwed up this conference. Yeah. And um, and they only had to extend it by 24 hours, which is <laughs> not too bad, yeah. you know, after, what, four, three weeks or several weeks of negotiations and so forth. Yes. So, you know, watch this space, I think, is the answer over the next few weeks. But certainly for countries like Australia, we're going to be talking about a very substantial change in focus of economies. Thank goodness. And I see that uh, Malcolm Turnbull has apparently already taken off the ban on wind farms, which is good. I mean, those things were evil. But, uh, you know, I mean, they're related to... Unsightly. Related to the fans. Unsightly. They're related to fans. I mean, those things are evil. You get your fingers in there, whew, that's bad. (laughs) Anyway, apparently wind farms are back on the agenda. I hope nobody uh, just tuned in and thinks that we're talking (laughs) the way we think. Yes, so it seems as though a bit of logic might come to this for Australia, which is good, and I think Mm. if we... um, if we can cancel that latest coal mine that we just agreed to, I don't know if we can do that, but that wouldn't Surely. I think I think what it does is just inject a lot of energy and enthusiasm back into the fact that this is something that cannot be ignored. And yeah. that the tone of the conversation is now that, uh, you know, reduction in emissions is going to happen. Yeah. It, it is what's going to happen. And, and it's, it's a great a great sign of, you know, for a long time we've talked about the science being there, the science being there, the science being there. And it actually for the first time this morning, I have to say, Pretty much in my life, it felt like the whole world for a moment actually listened to the mm. science and, yep. and maybe moving in the right direction. And this stuff's not made up. You know, this stuff is evidence-based and you have to go with that sooner or later because otherwise we're going to be in deep trouble. And you know who they're going to look to first when we get into trouble, the science. Well, some of these things we can't help. Anyway, uh, sermon complete. <laughs> We're going to play can hop some music. Down now. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, this chair I'm on is a bit higher than normal, isn't it? I think Chris KP pumped it up. Um, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and then we'll be back in the in a moment with the head of the School of Biomedical Sciences from the University of Melbourne, Professor Fabian Mackay, who is an extraordinary researcher and uh, a great individual that we're going to have a long chat to, and she will be, of course, our last guest for the year because next week we're just going to stuff around um, and tell, tell you all the awesome things that we thought were science uh, newsworthy throughout the year. It'll be a fun show, but uh, no guests. Three, triple E. We're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R, folks. Uh, we have a guest in the studio. Professor Fabian Mackay is the head of the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Fabian, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. Now, we, we can't uh, start this interview without diving in a bit to your background because you have this fabulous accent that uh, <laughs> you know, we can barely hear, but uh, oh, it, it is awesome. Um, tell us a bit about where you grew up and, and where you started because you didn't originate uh, here in Melbourne, I suspect. No, I mean, as you can tell from the accent, I was born in France um, and I studied in France. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied actually um, all my undergrad uh, studies were done in a town called Clermont-Ferrand and it's famous for uh, the Michelin tire maker uh, oh right <laughs> and you, <laughs> didn't, you didn't end up in that industry though <laughs> well I tried you tried <laughs> <laughs> so basically it's, it's a region with volcanoes and mountains mm-hmm. it's in the centre of France and um, I actually trained as a biomedical engineer I, I did a little a few years, you know, in uh, in the medical school, yep. a bit by accident, and then, um, but I, I didn't want to go there initially. Um, it's just because um, I, I was sick at the time. Okay. And um, so finishing high school, um, 
you know, I thought I would go to mechanical engineering. So talking about Michelin, that's why I said mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd do mechanical engineering, going to Toulouse, work on TGV trains and Airbus planes. And so when I was in high school, I liked mathematics and physics and uh, and other things, and I was good at that. I enjoyed that. But being sick, that just compromised that because mm. in France we have a system of. Uh, um, what we call elite school, not elite from the point of view of money, but elite from the point of view of excellence. Mm. And um, and to get there, you have to be very good. But because I was sick the last year of high school, it just compromised my chance to go there. So anyway, mm. so it, because I still had you know had good grades, uh, you know I went to different universities. I didn't know where to go because I wasn't expected to finish high school with a degree. And then there were the choices between uh, medical school from a practical point of view, because my parents felt, well, if something happens to you, you know, the hospital is next door, they can cut you easily. You know? so, <laughs> so, that's that's very scary. So, yeah. But personally, I wanted to do history, because I was very good at history. I wanted to do journalism as well. I thought history would lead me to journalism, so I thought that was another option. But my parents felt, no, 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 medical is better. Yeah. And then, uh, so I went there, not one as you can see when you've been sick the last thing you want to do is go back to a hospital even as a practitioner mm, mm. but I did enjoy it to be honest I really enjoy learning about the human body I enjoyed learning about disease and and you know the, the aspects of medical course that were great like cardiology I like that because it's a bit like you know physiology it's a bit of tubing and other thing going on so it was bringing back to engineering and uh, but also because I'd been sick in some ways, I thought, well, you know, I'd like to do better than what we're doing at the moment. Because when I was at the hospital, the treatment was crap, and then uh, you know, it's just I thought, you know, there was a huge need. And you know, at that age, you get a bit angry, thinking, you know, can't we do any better? Mm, yeah. And then <coughs> I remember one of my doctors said to me, well, you know, stop whinging about it. You can do something about Mm -hmm. it. You can do biomedical research. And I thought of it. And at the time, there there was a new school opening that was there, actually, um, engineering in biomedical research, so biomedical engineering. And it was a course where you can learn how to design new treatment. You can learn about, um, you know, just finding new treatments and just designing them from an engineering point of view. And I thought, actually, that's great. Maybe I should... Uh, so I tried, and I, it was a long shot because, you know, I'd been outside of the system on the waiting list, and I finally got in. So I was on the waiting list. They called me. In those days, we didn't have mobile phone, you know. So <laughs> they called me, gave me 24 hours to get there. Wow. And didn't tell my parents, got there, and got on the weekend. My parents said, so how's medical school? I said, well, how about that, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I went to the engineering course. It was great. It was a really, because I had a sense that, um, you know, I could combine something I discovered I liked about medicine, you know, with another passion, which is mm. to do something and bring something better mm. in terms of the tools and the treatment that are going to yeah. help clinicians to do a better job mm. and treating patients and saving lives really it's a great show i love i love it. engineers you know they they move a little bit over to the dark side but not completely and it sounds like the engineers still alive in you um now fabian one of your areas of work yeah. that's been ongoing for quite a while is around autoimmune diseases yeah. i might just get you to start off though for our listeners who are not aware of what autoimmune diseases actually are and give us a bit of an idea of yeah. you know how they work how they affect people and and why they're so difficult to deal with all right 
Right. So maybe uh, I should explain what the immune system is mm. in the first place. So we have an immune system, and to make it, say it very simply, we have blood cells, and those blood cells are cells in our spleen or our lymph nodes, and they are little soldiers in a way that are fighting infections and also fighting cancers. And then so our immune system is there to really help us normally to fight infections and fight cancers and keep us healthy. But for some very strange reason in some patients, the immune system can suddenly turn against you. And immune cells that are meant to protect you suddenly recognize cells in your body as foreign and start attacking uh, the cells in the body for, for very strange reasons. So we have some ideas as to what the reasons are. Um, the, the other thing the immune system does, it's, it's, also, it's a factory. So in our bone marrow, in our thymus, we have factories of immune cells. Okay, and, but these cells, you know, as you can see, any factories, you know, you've got some defective pieces sometimes. And uh, so the factory makes good cells, the cells you need to fight cancer, virus, infections, and then but occasionally you can get some cells that are defective. And rather than recognizing a foreign antigen or an infectious agent, they're going to recognize your own tissue and they're dangerous. But normally the immune system is very good at um, having a quality control. And a quality control says, okay, this is good, we'll keep it, this is bad, we'll kill it, and we reject it, we put it in the bin. So that's what the immune, does, the immune system does normally. But in some patients, that particular safety or quality control, you know, doesn't happen. And you have cells that emerge in the immune system and in the body that are dangerous and attacking tissues. Hmm. So that's the definition of autoimmune disease. And they have a different type of autoimmune disease and they name depending on the kind of tissue organ that's being attacked in the hmm. body. Presumably, though, these, these um, people who have autoimmune diseases, I mean, their immune system is still doing the lion's share of the good work, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. still, is, is it still doing all of that or is it compromised? Um, you know, we hear about other diseases where the immune system is compromised. Yeah. Does the immune system in someone with autoimmune still, you know, fight all the other stuff it was meant to fight and just additionally fight ourselves? Uh, that's an interesting question because... When you have an autoimmune disease, you're being given some treatment that actually compromise yeah. your mm, immune system. Right. And, and often, you know, uh, if I take, for example, lupus, just take one mm. that I know very quite well, uh, the type of treatment you get are corticosteroids or immunosuppressants. Well, they're going to compromise your immune defenses. So not only you have the disease, which is a big inflammation, you know, of the skin or the kidney, sometimes the brain, the lung and the joints. And then at the same time, you know, you're more prone to infections because mm. the treatment is immunocompromising you. Mm. And uh, why is it that these things start partway through life? I mean, there's many diseases that people get and they, some are genetically inherited and we get them very young or, yeah. you know, we, we may develop them. But uh, autoimmune se seems to just switch on at certain points in in people's lives. Do we know what triggers that? Well, that's, that's part of the mystery, really. But we know that some diseases, take lupus, for instance, it's more prevalent in women. Mm -hmm. So we think maybe there is some, uh, you know, hormonal issues uh, underlying or underpinning maybe the, the issue that can be genetic issues, environmental issues. Uh, but you have autoimmune disease that can start very young 
you know, in mm. in, uh, in in children, you know, juvenile diabetes, yeah. for instance, and um, you can have others at later in age, um, you know, but it can happen at different ages. Mm. But why? Why is that happening? Uh, we're still, you know, trying to figure out mm. the. Uh, so um, how far along are we in not only understanding what goes wrong with the immune system during diseases like lupus, but in actually developing, as you say, new treatments and new tools for, for therapies? So, well, th- there's been some latest development on that. Do you want me to, mm. to discuss a little bit uh, what we've been doing in, in recent years? Um, so just tracking back uh, with a discovery that I've made in the lab some years ago, uh, when I was in Boston, uh, we were in a team, uh, team of researchers and we were looking at interesting factors in the immune system that are important for the immune system. And a long story short, um, my lab, in collaboration with others in Switzerland, we discovered together a factor uh, that we all make. And that factor is very important because without that factor, we don't have these immune cells that are very important to make antibodies. So antibodies, you know, are critical, you know, through vaccination, for instance, to neutralize, you know, uh, pathogenic agents and viruses and so forth. So without that factor, you can't have antibodies, you can't have B cells. So it's an important factor from the point of view of a healthy immune system. But in a discovery I've made in the lab, engineered a mouse making too much of that factor and and what happens uh, the mouse was slowly developing a disease that was reminiscent of lupus mm. and it, it turned out to be a, a really interesting model to um, understand the disease in a way and try to understand why things went wrong so this is this is just because the mouse had more of this one factor that we all have anyway that's right, yeah. but but just having a lot more a lot of, of it. it. Yeah. And then continuing on this study, so it was the first demonstration really that when you have too much of that, you, you can get a disease that is reminiscent or resemble lupus in, in, in humans. And of course, it's back a different type of work. It's looking at patients with an autoimmune disease, and it's a work we did with um, collaborators in South Australia. And then we looked at the level of that factor in patients with autoimmune disease could be rheumatoid arthritis lupus another kind of autoimmune disease called Sjogren which attacks the salivary gland and lacrimal gland the gland that make uh, tears and saliva and uh, of course we, we confirmed that in these patients the levels of that particular factor uh, were very high mm. and therefore that sparked uh, a worldwide effort really to develop uh, something that would neutralize that factor in disease mm. so what has been designed actually it's it's an antibody it's an antibody that is recognizing this factor and it's been engineered to be a whole human a whole human antibody so it's suitable for injection in patients and what that antibody does it, it neutralizes that factor in the patients and so it's been developed it's been tried in clinical trial. Uh, the name is belimumab, and it blocks that factor. And it makes what we call the primary endpoint in clinical trial. It means that it showed efficacy uh, in clinical trials in, in a subgroup of patients with lupus. So it is an improvement. It's, mm. it's a progress. It's something. It's yeah. something, um, mm. and it's the advantage of that new treatment. It's it's a uh, 
what they call steroid sparing. So it mm. means you can avoid uh, or reduce <laughs> exactly using yeah. corticosteroids, which I was well known are not yeah. you know, treatment not the best. welcome by patients. Yeah. They don't like it. You are indeed listening to 3 R. It's Owen Steiner Gogo, and we are speaking with Professor Fabian Mackay, who's the head of the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Now, Fabian, um, the autoimmune stuff's amazing, but one of the areas which I think is just, you know, exploding at the moment is this space of cancer immunotherapy. You mentioned before that our our immune system normally fights cancers. How is it that we end up getting cancer if that's the case? That's a very good question. So the thing is, um, the thing to know actually is that the immune system is probably the best anti-cancer feature ever created. Mm, that's good to know. <laughs> and in a healthy individual, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it does a really good job. You know, experimentally, if you're trying to grow... Uh, a tumor in an animal with a strong immune system is very difficult. Hmm. Um, but what happens is um, it's a balance. And when the cancer is taking, um, it's just growing and growing, it has ways of uh, compromising uh, immune defenses. So there's different ways it can do that. It can inhibit actually the little soldiers, you know, uh, into recognizing the cancer and, and, and killing it. So that's, that has led to different strategy to um, treat cancer over the years. So, rather, so for many, many years, people focused on the tumor cells and trying to find drugs. Chemo is a good example mm, of drugs mm. that are basically targeting the cancers. And, and, you know, if we treat early, that's good. If, if it's too late, then that has, you know, we have cancers that don't, do not respond. And we still have issues with chemo. You know, it does what it does, but it's not always helping. And then, but the other issue is uh, what's happening to the immune system? Mm. Why suddenly the immune system no longer recognizes the cancer? And there are many reasons, but some of the reasons is immunosuppression that is driven by the tumor. And there's different ways the tumors can do that. So it's just uh, factors, uh, or even within the tumor, you can have immune cells that are producing factors, so basically telling the other immune cells, go away, there's mm. nothing to see. And, um, and therefore, you cannot, the immune system just ignores or pretends or just cannot see the tumor. The tumor becomes invisible. And, and that's a real problem. But then over the years, we've discovered uh, factors and, and receptors that are responsible for the tumor being invisible to the immune system. And then new treatments have been developed to basically block those receptors and ligands that are responsible for that problem. And they, they showed efficacy mm. in the clinic. Mm. And that's a mini revolution, actually, in cancer treatment. I recently heard um, a, a researcher talking about these new immunotherapies as the beginning of the end of cancer and that like HIV is now almost a chronic manageable disease that with new immunotherapies that, that boost the immune system's own ability to detect and, and, and kill cancer, that, that cancer could be you know, a chronic treatable condition. Um, and do you, what, what's your view on that? I think it's a very promising start. I think uh, there's some spectacular results being seen, you know. So I think, but the, the challenge still is that it's for some cancer at the moment, uh, you know, melanomas and, and a few others. But there are other mechanisms we still need to discover. Mm. So we really need to look at all of them. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of a very bad cancer, like pancreatic cancer. I'd like to understand 
there, you know, what is it that this cancer is so bad? And, and so it, it sounds to me like there's a couple of things we need. I mean, first of all, it seems like when we use chemotherapy, we pretty yeah. much, you know, we hammer a person's immune system, which is probably not yes. the best thing to do. Yeah. But then there seems to be two things that we need to do here. What One is to remind our immune system, hey, these things are bad, and to go after them. So we kind of have to switch it back on. And second is to sort of supercharge it so it doesn't get behind it, it sounds like it's getting behind in some of these cancer scenarios because yep. of the growth is so rapid are we, are we tackling those two things separately fabian or is it all part of the one one game uh, at the moment you know i mean it, it's used a bit separately but I, I can imagine that in the future we're going to be a bit more clever mm. and really try to balance that actually and and really think about immunostimulating patients at the same time as we're trying to control the tumor burden mm. and i hope that's going to be the future because really this is what's going to help at the end of the day yeah i, I want to go slightly sideways um strangely but if if on one hand you've got cancer cells which can essentially hide from the immune system or, or disguise themselves um, and on the other hand you've got normal cells that are just being normal but can in some cases be attacked by immune cells in treatments is there any role for treating you know, the cells that aren't the immune cells? Is there anything you can do to help them, you know, be, be targeted the right way? Yeah, there's different strategies that can be used. Um, you know, in the old days, there were vaccines, you know, against cancer. The problem of that is they were using the normal immune cells, but if the normal immune cells are being inhibited by the yeah, tumour and yeah. not working, um, <laughs> what people are trying to do is design some immune cells uh, that are specifically attacking uh, the tumor cells, uh, they go CAR T cells, you know, in in, in the literature, mm -hmm. and and those might work. There are still challenges with that. Uh, I think it works well for circulating cancer like leukemia, but I think uh, we're still having a challenge in making sure they go to a solid tumor and they work, they manage to get inside sure. and kill the cells. Yeah. So it's just, I think it's 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 an advance. Uh, it needs more work to really mm. work properly. Presumably this approach too would be a, a major series of breakthroughs with regards to cancers of the brain where we, we can't get the chemotherapies effectively across that barrier into the brain. So, you know, I think it's a very small percentage of those materials make it to the brain. But, but our immune system, of course, is well and truly functioning there, is that right? And I think it's a very good point because uh, you're right, um, can, uh, brain cancer is a real problem. But also we have a, not a great understanding of the immune system in the brain as well. Mm. And I think there's a lot of research that should be done there as well to really understand what's there and how we can really uh, master that a lot better when there is a cancer. Mm. Well, you've got plenty of time, Fabian. I expect you to be, <laughs> be doing it. I don't worry. I'll have a job. <laughs> well, look, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us today about Thank this. Thank you for having me. Um, it, it is exciting, and I know you've got a, a, a massive um, sort of series of laboratories and so forth there at the University of Melbourne that are all based around you know solving these problems and so forth so hopefully we can um, we can move things forward very quickly um, but it's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing your story about how you how you started and so forth so um, have, have a great research career ahead of you I'm sure many of these things if you can if you can knock out some of the autoimmune diseases and even have a crack at cancer I think a lot a lot of, a lot of people are going to be banging down your door so good no luck pressure. with that no pressure. Thank you. no pressure no pressure Professor Fabian Mackay is the head of the School of Biomedical Sciences in the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne and uh, spent a bit of time with us today.
Now, Jen, you uh, just vanished from the show for about almost four months. I know, and everyone thought we were having a holiday. So <laughs> many people said, how was your holiday? And it didn't look like a holiday, I have to say. No. Following the Facebook uh, stuff from your ever-Facebook-heavy ever um, husband, uh, Ewan, was, uh, it, it did not look like the typical holiday poolside sites. Well, I think, you know, you always have a Facebook highlights reel, don't you? There's lots mm. of analysis, you know, lots of research going on in there about out there about how people only show the good stuff. and. Yep. You know, when you're doing research, you don't show the five hours a day you spend in 40 degrees counting Mm. grass and trees because it's not that exciting. Also, we didn't have mobile reception very often, to be honest. And because we did this research as a crowdfunded project, we were very conscious that there were, you know, there were 332 people out there who contributed their hard-earned cash to enable us to go and do this research. So we were very conscious that... Every time we did have some internet reception, we would let people know where we were, update the map, show them yep. where we'd be working and show them what we'd been doing. But, of course, you don't often put up the really yeah, boring yeah. photos. This Famous is our up. tent in yet yeah. another place of yeah. open savannah. <laughs> so so let's, um, let's recap just quickly. What, yep. what was the purpose of the research trip itself? I mean, what were you trying to do? So the purpose was to return 10 years later to a whole lot of field sites that my husband, Ewan, who's a um, senior lecturer at Deakin Uni, had originally set up uh, when he was at James Cook Uni to look at principally the Antilopine wallaroo, which is a not very well-known species of macropods, so macropods being the kangaroos, wallabies, all those kind of guys, Mm -hmm. but at the same time looking at a whole lot of other species that live in northern Australia. So Antilopine wallaroos are tropically restricted. They only live in a band of the tropics in Cape York, which is the very tip of Queensland. So people who think Cairns is kind of (laughs) as far north as Queensland goes, Cape York goes on for about another 800 kilometres north of there, through the Northern Territory and over to the Kimberley. So he did huge amounts of work which I was fortunate enough to help him with quite a bit of it, basically mapping where these guys occurred, what sort of habitat. But at the same time, whenever you see any other kangaroo species or indeed any other mammal, you record that. And so we this this work had been finished 10 years ago, 2005. We'd since moved to Melbourne. We had jobs down here. We'd had kids. You know, life had kind of settled mm. down. But mm. we always had in the back of our minds what's going on up there. And there's been quite a lot of work done on mm. small mammals in northern Australia, and it's well uh, been well documented that a lot of small mammal species are declining, but nobody had done any systematic surveys looking at what was going on with these larger animals and we it was partly a kind of a heart thing of we love it up there and we feel really connected to this place and these animals but also just you know biologically we we had to capitalize well we had Mm. to capitalize on having such incredibly strong data from 10 years ago and go back and find out what had happened so we raised enough money to go to all of the queensland sites or pretty much all of the queensland sites how many sites was that uh, we went back to, I think, oh, I'm trying to remember, I think we surveyed 28 sites, something wow. like that, mm. which doesn't sound that much in, in nearly four months, but, you know, we spend three days at each site. So mm-hmm. basically we arrive somewhere, we go out and set up our camera traps, which we didn't have 10 years ago. So these are motion-triggered camera traps, um, meaning that we can pick up dingoes, cats, more cryptic species, so animals that you're less likely to see during the day, shyer species. So drop we'd bears. set them up. Drop bears. Yeah, plenty of records of drop bears. <laughs> I'm helping. Yeah, you're helping a lot. (laughs) So basically at every site we have two five-kilometre-long transects, so two lots of five kilometres. At every kilometre we set up a camera trap. In front of that camera trap we sweep the road because, of course, none of these are sealed roads. They're all just Mm, sand, dirt roads. Sounds like a pretty basic kind of kindergarten thing to do, but you get fingerprints. You get footprints. (laughs) So you can come back and say, oh, yeah. The fingerprints are from your kids. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But you can come back and see that, you know, the dingo, dingoes walked here and you pick up really cool prints from you, snakes and lizards and, you know, did all Did you photograph of any of that? 
when uh, we were yeah, doing print. it. Yeah. yeah. Because hundreds of them. I reckon of that would actually be really. <laughs> I mean, apart from useful, I think it'd be really nice. I'd, I'd mm. like, I'd like cool to stuff. see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can show you a whole... I've got a whole album Woo-hoo! of photos, which I'm also giving to our kindergarten, because the so, kids love it, them it all, sounds, so. it sounds like, you know, there was such a, a strong, you know, routine and a, a strong system that like you turn up, you set up, you do your 5K markers, you sweep the roads, you do the yep. thing, you set up the cameras. You know, I mean, and then to do that... Again and then yeah. again, nearly thirty times. Nearly thirty times in forty degree heat in the tropics mm. with two small children in tow. Yeah, it was pretty full on. <laughs> I don't think we really. I mean, we kind of knew what we we're up for. The thing that we hadn't thought about was when we used to do it just us as adults. There was always a bit of downtime. So I said about the first day you set up your camera traps. A normal day is you get up before dawn, you go out and do a dawn survey, which is driving that five kilometres sort of mm. as slowly as you can mm. without stalling yeah. and recording every animal that you see. And of course, then you can plug those numbers into fancy sums and get an estimate of population for all your different species. So the three days is because you need to do that driven transect four times to get accurate enough predictions. Oh, so you wow. do it at dawn twice and at dusk twice. You also then do vegetation surveys, which might take four or five hours to kind of document what the yeah. habitat is like at each of Grass. those kilometre places. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, see, that's the thing about Cape York. Cape York is so beautiful and variable. Some mm. of it's forest. There's a patch of rainforest. There's, you know, there's... And grass is hard to classify. It's everywhere. Oh, no, mm. it's not. Oh, really? <laughs> I can oh, tell you a lot about grass. It was when I was at uni. God, I was terrible at oh, it. Oh, <laughs> no, in the tropics, there's, there's thousands of species yeah, of grass. Anyway. That's, yeah, that's it. But yeah. the thing is, you know, you normally had a little bit of downtime. Between finishing your veg work and doing your dusk survey, there's a couple of hours to kind of, you know, chew the fat, mm. play a game of cards, just, you know, whatever. But when you've got two small kids that you're having to do schoolwork with as well as everything yeah. else. Yeah, homeschooling at the same time in the middle. Yeah, so, and the distances, you know, thousands. and th- We drove over 20,000 k. Yeah, that's, that a time. It's a that's a lot. It's a lot. But, you know, I feel so Around blessed the world kind of distance, yeah. to have done it. It was yeah, incredible. Yeah. And we haven't analysed the data yet, but, look, we found all the species that we expected to find. They're all still there, but certainly our gut feeling is that they are in lower numbers. And that's because it's so heavily droughted up there. It is unbelievably dry. Yeah. It's just, it's just, you know, being a farmer up there these days is not pretty. So if the climate change predictions are correct, which is that up north we're going to be getting longer, hotter, dry seasons and shorter, wet seasons, then the long-term story, I think, is, mm. is one to really be concerned about. We're going to have to get you in to talk about the data as it's analysed. Um, I wish, <laughs> Don't you trust yeah, me? I, and you, and you, but, <laughs> but, you know, we'll get you both in. And I, I just wish I'd been there myself with a camera when you went back to the hire car company and handed over <laughs> the keys and said, there you go, enjoy. <laughs> no, it's from Deacon Uni. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Well, Deacon, could be time to buy a new car. Cause, it's already uh, back out in the field. No, the car's fine. It's still fine. okay. It's already back in the field. Fantastic. Well, look, it's it, it's great to hear the data coming in, and we'll, we'll get all the, um, you know, the what the kind of moments that you guys would yeah. have um, no doubt had up there when you saw certain things and encountered certain things in ways, and, and we'll talk a lot about how it's changed because, mm. I mean, seeing it and describing it in papers are two different things. Yeah, and I think absolutely. It'd um, be great to get that insight from, from the two of you. We're pretty much out of time. Uh, Chris KP, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Jen, thanks for that. Thank and you. And we'll see you, see you next, next week. week. Uh, Dr. Crystal, I think this, or you and Chris, I think that's it for the year for you two. You're off doing other things. Happy festiveness. Have a yes. Have a merry Christmas, uh, science, science New Year. Happy fest. Be festive. Yeah. Be festive. Science fest. <laughs> yeah. Be nice to each other. Uh, Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed, and uh, a big thank you to our guest today, Fabian Mackay from the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening today. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. We'll talk to you again next week for our final show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.